You know, energy and civilization are very closely linked. If you look at World War II, World War One, controlling the energy sources were very critical in who was going to win those. Societies and civilizations are always going uh, more dense on energy density, right? It's like the, the further you go and you get more energy dense, you get more efficiencies. The biggest inefficiencies on the oil and gas side, the last 10 years, there was a lot of misallocation of capital. You know, building more infrastructure, getting the permitting process to be able to extract these minerals, um, streamlining things from a regulatory standpoint. I really think that we could, I mean, we're the leader in energy in the world. I think that we can continue to be that and even have more dominance if we could get some of these things done. So what I find surprising about it is really how cheap it is. And especially when you look at it, how cheap the product is over time, you know, attribute a lot of that to uh, personal property rights and the freedoms that we have in the U.S., which people might find weird, but you know the idea that somebody can own the minerals underneath their land, lease those minerals to a you know an entrepreneur or a company to come and drill them, and then they can extract those resources is is kind of foreign in most countries. Most countries, the government owns the minerals. This podcast is entertainment, not financial tax or legal advice. Views expressed represent statements of the speaker in their individual capacity, do not represent the views of Unchained, and should not be considered investment advice. Speakers often have personal family or business connections to Unchained, which may include direct financial benefits. Please see our disclosure at unchained.com slash podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Frontier podcast. This week, I have on Max Scagliardi. Max, welcome. Joe, thanks for having me on. It's good to talk to you again. It's been a little while, but uh, it's been too long, I think, since we've been on the podcast, so I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I know it has been a while since we've done it. So glad to have you back on the podcast. Glad to talk again. Uh, this is great. For the audience that may not know you, can you share a little bit about your background and your experience specifically in the in energy industry? Yeah. So Max Gagliardi, I'm the co-founder and a partner at a company called Ancova Energy, which is our primary business. We've been around for nine years, uh, started in 2014. And really it's and for people that don't know the industry that well, we've always kind of played in this intersection between taking the energy and monetizing it. So whether that's selling the product or negotiating the infrastructure contracts, like what we call midstream agreements, which are pipeline deals to get you know natural gas and NGLs to sales, or for oil, like doing the trucking or the gathering there. And it's just kind of this niche segment of the energy industry. The company started out as an advisory consulting firm, working for a lot of small and mid-sized oil and gas producers, so the people that drill for the product to help them uh, basically monetize their product better. And then in 2016, we started our physical commodities marketing business. And there we were actually, in some instances, taking title to the product and then reselling it and charging a fee. Or in other instances, we act as like an agent and sell it on their behalf. They're both kind of similar. They feed off each other. And then we've also got a, a tech product called Encova View that we've launched the last couple of years. And that's really putting a lot of analytics uh, around the data that we have. It's also got a trading platform that does what a lot of the big trading softwares do, but allows you to help you sell the products, like automate the trades, automate the invoices, things like that. And so that's the primary role that I've been in and been doing it for about 13 years and like learned it working back in the day at some big public EMP companies, uh, exploration and production companies, and then got the chance to go off on my own. And outside of that, we've dabbled in the Bitcoin space. We've got a little uh, Bitcoin mine that we started uh, probably two coming up on two years ago, and so still run that. It's it's uh, it's an off grid mine that runs off of natural gas for some wells that we own a piece of, and we're happy to talk about the the mining side there uh, too. And then we've also got some real estate stuff that we do, and but the primary thing is uh, is energy and in, in our in our core business with Ancova. Yeah, very cool. I'm curious, what inspired you to get into 
the energy industry to begin with, like out of school? Well, I didn't really. So my grew up, my dad's a geologist and an engineer, and my mom worked in like the accounting side of like energy. And so just grew up around the industry and did not know what I wanted to do going into school. I actually got like a ho- hospitality degree, like a hotel restaurant degree in undergrad and thought I'm going to go. I was like 17 on like a, I was snowboard strapped to my feet on like a ski lift. And I was like, yeah, I want to like travel and, you know, work in something cool. And so I just like picked a major, not really knowing what I wanted to do. And then a couple of years into that, I was like, I don't really want to do this, but didn't want to switch because I would have had to like stay longer in school. And so uh, graduated right in the great financial crisis, like in 2009 and ended up having an internship and just decided to stay in school and get an MBA, which I don't necessarily recommend people do. It worked for me because like at the time the job market sucked and I just was kind of like, this isn't really the path I want, but ended up interning at a midstream company in Tulsa, which is like a pipeline business that moves natural gas. And I kind of worked in the uh, business development side of it. And I just thought it was fascinating. I was like, this is cool. You get to do like business stuff, negotiating deals, talking to folks, but there's also like engineering and science and like all this complicated things that are involved with it as well. And so I think that having kind of a business background, there's only so many things in oil and gas that you can do. And a lot of it's engineering and kind of the sciences. And so I was lucky to find something that I really felt passionate about. I really liked the aspect of monetizing the energy and kind of making the money. And after I did that internship, I went and worked at Chesapeake Energy, which got, was really fortunate because at the time they were like the 800 pound gorilla on the natural gas side, like the most active driller in the U.S. And just kind of got thrown into the fire there and really got to learn a valuable skill set. And it's something that I just, uh, is a bit fortunate and luck. And then also, you know, having good mentors and people in the space, like my dad, that kind of nudged me uh, in that direction. So sort of how I fell into it. Very cool. Yeah, I guess. Let's learn somewhat about the energy industry. And this could be from a business perspective or something that you picked up along just listening to the science and engineering guys in the space. Like what's one surprising or misunderstood fact about the energy industry? What I find surprising about it is really how cheap it is. And especially when you look at it, how cheap the product is over time. And I know we get hyped up about oil prices getting close to $100 a barrel. Um, but really, if you look at it on like an inflation adjusted basis over time, the technology that specifically U.S. onshore uh, drilling and completion companies have been able to unlock with horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, it's really just been a game changer. And the innovation that's spurred here in the U.S. has been massive. I you know attribute a lot of that to uh, personal property rights and the freedoms that we have in the U.S., which people might find weird. But you know the idea that like somebody can own the minerals underneath their land lease those minerals to a, you know, an entrepreneur or a company to come and drill them. And then they can extract those resources is, is kind of foreign in most countries. Most countries, the government owns the minerals. And so I think it's this idea around having, you know, personal property rights and it's allowed for, to spur so much innovation and so many like startup companies that have come in and done all these amazing things. And then we look at what that's done to the price of energy over time. I mean, inflation adjusted natural gas is just going down and it's deflationary almost, right? I mean, it's just, it hasn't gone anywhere in, in a decade plus and oil really even still being at 90 something dollars a barrel. Uh, I mean, shoot, it was, you know, it got it as high as $140 a barrel back in, you know, 08 or whenever the last time it had the big spike was. And so again, on an inflation adjusted basis, it's a, it's the core product that we use for everything. And it's actually gotten cheaper over time. And I think that's a testament to 
uh, to real technology and real innovation because that's how it's supposed to work. When something's really disruptive, uh, it should be deflationary. I'm um, kind of like, if you look at Bitcoin, it's like this idea that it's new tech, it's going to be deflationary. I think that's a great lit litmus test for lots of things. And I think if you look at stuff that's like being touted in the energy transition, some of these other uh, energy pursuits, I think that they're actually inflationary. And that's a whole other topic we can get into. But that's something that surprises me is just how much innovation uh, that we've done here in the U.S. And that like when you look at all these processes, like we're literally drilling I mean, not to the center of the earth, but sometimes it feels like it. We're drilling miles underground and then miles out horizontally, extracting these products, running them through this huge value chain of pipelines and refineries and processing plants and treatments. And then they're getting to your to your home or to the products that we use or to your car. And it's amazingly cheap for the consumer, given the complexity of the industry. So that's what just blows me away. Yeah, I guess it is kind of fascinating thinking about how oil inflation adjusted has been deflationary despite you know i'm sure over the last 50 years we've rapidly ramped up the amount of oil we can produce amount around the world so we're producing more of it and then you know each individual unit i guess is cheaper uh so to speak very interesting you mentioned horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracking what can you give us like a high level view of what those terms mean and like how that has made it better or easier to efficiently produce oil and gas yeah, I think it's it's a combination of these technologies and they've evolved over time. You know, fracking was what a lot of people attributed the shale revolution to. And in a big part, it, you know, it was a factor, but people have been hydraulically fracturing wells for 100 years. And it's really the process of injecting high pressure water and sand and what we call profits, like propens, things that basically keep the pores and the rock open. Uh, so chemicals and the, you put them down into the hole and you do it with lots of pressure and before you do that, you put in uh, charges that basically little explosives that perforate the rock. So it explodes the rock and then you'd pump high pressure water into it. And then when it comes back out, you extract uh, the oil and the gas from these really small pores within these rocks. And I think that the game changer was historically we drilled what we called conventional reservoirs, which could only be accessed by drilling straight down. So we call that vertical drilling. And you had kind of directional drilling where you maybe drill at an angle but what we were able to do kind of at the uh, beginning of the turn of this, like kind of in the early mid 2000s was really perfect uh, what we call horizontal drilling. It's when you go straight down vertically and then you can almost make like a, a complete, you know, turn, a hard angle turn and go out and drill through multiple formations. And then you combine that with like better technology on the fracking side, uh, using more water, using different types of sand, using different types of propens. And then you can really extract a lot of resource that we otherwise thought was, you know, previously uneconomic to pull out of the ground. And so it ha it wasn't one evolution where it's like, hey, we just figured out how to do this. It was like we knew that we could probably do it, but we got incrementally better over time. And what you've seen in a lot of these basins is that the productivity has gone up, although some would argue it's starting to plateau and go down in some areas. But there for a while, productivity was just going up and up and up, and we were refining these techniques to get better at extracting these resources. Do you know like how property rights work when it comes to, I guess, horizontal drilling? Like to me, it'd be, I'm just, this question came to my mind. Like if I own one acre and I drill down, but then I all of a sudden start going to the left or something and there's a bunch of oil on my neighbor's property, does that mean I can take his oil or how does that work? Typically like you would own like so many acres within a unit. And so what they'll do is they'll unitize uh, these drilling locations. So you may look and get like a 640 or a 12 
680, which is like, you know, two sections, 640 is like one section, which is like a four mile square, uh, you know, uh, box basically. And you find all the people that own acreage in that. And so one guy may own half the mineral rise, so he owns 50%. Another guy may own one acre, so he owns a tiny little fraction. And the reason why it's split up like that is because a lot of times, you know, back in the day, whether it was in a state like Oklahoma, where you had kind of the land run and people got like little small fragments of, you know, property rights or mineral rights, or if you could be in a place like the Northeast where these, you know, these property mineral rights go back to the colonial times, So it's very fractionalized. You may have a hundred, you know, probably not a hundred, but potentially like a hundred landowners in a, uh, or royalty owners in a single unit. What they do is they unitize, um, this section that they're drilling in. And then that's basically, you're supposed to be pulling the resource from that unit. And so anybody that owns in there would be getting compensated for that. Now, the problem is, is that whenever you could be draining resources from an adjacent unit, so you might have a unit right next to you and you're fracking in, in uh, one unit and you're pulling oil and gas from another unit. And if you've watched like the movie, There Will Be Blood, he's talking about like draining their land or drilling underneath it. Some of that's exaggerated. You can't, like if you don't own the, uh, you can't drill into someone else's mineral rights and drain them, but you can drill next to them and um, in theory drain some of that. So there's a lot of work that companies do around when they go to unitize these sections, they do a lot of trades and swaps and things like that, where it's like, hey, give me some of your acreage in this unit and I'll trade it to you for acreage over in this unit because I'm gonna drill here and I know it's gonna drain there. And companies are like incentivized to do it because it's like, hey, I don't want you draining uh, the resources next to me, so I'll trade you so I can get my acreage kind of blocked up over here and I've got my playground and you have your playground over there. But it happens sometimes, sometimes you, um, you've had guys that'll like drill a really successful pad of wells and they'll come online and then they'll be uh, producing. And then like six months later, someone comes in and drills right next to them. And then all of a sudden those wells like drop in productivity and their volume goes down because someone's draining that resource from the adjacent section. So it can definitely happen, but within the unit that you're drilling, if you own uh, minerals there, then you should be getting compensated for those. That makes sense. Yeah, no, that was very detailed, very interesting. Um, where do you think the entire energy industry, whether it's oil and gas or outside oil and gas could be anything, where do you think it's lagging or inefficient in your view? I think right now there's the biggest inefficiencies on the oil and gas side. The last 10 years, there was a lot of misallocation of capital and, you know, you've seen this and I can draw some parallels to Bitcoin mining where you get kind of this gold rush phase and you get people to get access to a lot of cheap debt. And they go in and and uh, they lever up and they go buy a bunch of acreage and then they go drill it and then the prices crash and then now they have to service that debt or they've got other you know corporate initiatives like hey we've got to grow production or our stock price is going to get hit or we've got to service the debt and so they keep investing into new production even when the price probably doesn't support it from a standalone economic standpoint because they've got all these sunk costs that are weighing on that decision. I think like you see that in Bitcoin mining with, you know, guys going out and buying up a bunch of ASICs, public companies that are, you know, under the gun to grow. And it's like, well, is the marginal, you know, economics, the marginal unit here worth like adding that additional ASIC or adding that additional well, like in oil and gas. And sometimes the price at the time may say no, but you guys, you have guys that have outside motivations that want to go and drill those. I think that's the period we're, we're leaving in oil and gas. And now it's kind of the pendulum is swinging the other way. Instead of being overcapitalized, um, we're kind of undercapitalized in a lot of ways. You have the ESG movement, which has pushed a lot of institutional investors outside of traditional energy sources like oil, gas, and coal, and move them into these alternative energy sources like wind and solar. 
And what that's done is it's, uh, you know, now there's like less access to capital. The stock prices are not as high as they should be given the free cash flow that these companies are churning out. And so they're not investing as much into new production, even though the prices do support it now. And so it's just, you know, capital markets are probably efficient over the long term, but in the short term, you get these um, disconnects, right? And I think today, a lot of public companies are, public oil and gas companies are being forced to return capital to shareholders uh, via the form of dividends or share buybacks. Uh, shareholders are not really looking for them to ramp up production. You're seeing very measured growth in terms of like, hey, we want you to grow 5% this year, or we want you to keep production flat. And they would rather milk the higher prices and get money back to the shareholders than go back to the last 10 years when they were just drilling and they weren't making a return. And so right now there's probably an underinvestment in new oil and gas drilling. And if you really look at internationally as well, you've seen this trend along with ESG and the green movement. You also saw a lot of pullback during COVID when prices got really bad. And for U.S. onshore, um, you can ramp these things up fairly, fairly quickly. Like, you know, in six months, you could probably get a pretty good drilling plan put together and start completing wells, depending on the infrastructure that's available. But for a lot of these bigger, like mega projects, like offshore drilling or some of these like international kind of conventional drilling type projects, I mean, these may be three, four, five year lead times that are a multi-billion dollar project. And so when you go through a period of a couple of years where none of these are getting kicked off, that's a lag that takes to catch up to the market. So I think there's been an underinvestment the last uh, certainly three years. And we'll see. I mean, you could argue for natural gas, it's a little bit different because we've got so much of it and you can ramp it up. But certainly on the oil side, I think that my short and medium term view, barring some major recession, is that we're probably going to be in a higher price environment there. So that's some things just on the disconnects on capital allocation. On the green side, a lot of a lot of misallocation of capital. I mean, really, we have technologies called nuclear energy that if we wanted to, uh, we could probably power a lot of the grid with carbon-free or very low-carbon uh, energy via nuclear. The problem is you've got the regulatory capture there and the inefficiencies that are driven by that. And so over the last you know couple decades, nuclear has really fizzled out, even though it should be, uh, they should have more investment there and then it's been replaced now by wind and solar. Wind and solar, and this is, I didn't make this quote up, I think it was Doomberg or somebody, but it's basically, it's a cheap way to make expensive energy, whereas nuclear is an expensive way to make cheap energy. So it's like, yes, it's cheap up front to build a lot of wind and solar, but because of the intermittency, because of the useful life of these um, facilities and a bunch of other problems that they cause on the grid, it actually makes the grid less efficient. It makes energy more expensive. And I don't think that's an opinion. I think you can look and see pretty demonstrable evidence of that uh, across places like uh, Europe, like in Germany, they've done a lot of this. And then also in some of the states here in the U.S., like Texas, where, yeah, when the sun's shining and the wind's blowing, uh, it, it can it can be great. But when it's not, you know, you're seeing some real problems on the grid. So those are the areas I think uh, that I'm seeing some inefficiencies. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and definitely very fascinating. I I certainly saw the parallels between like Bitcoin mining and I guess oil and gas and I guess probably a bunch of other commodity industries where you know, like 2021, the price of Bitcoin ripped up higher. There was that delay between miners actually building out infrastructure, buying ASICs and deploying it and then difficulty rising and then making it less economical to mine Bitcoin. And then obviously the price of Bitcoin crashed and then difficulty kept going up. And then now miners in our have been in a world of hurt. And then eventually that's probably going to lead to you know, less investment and then 
price is going to rip higher again. So yeah, it's crazy how these cycles occur, but it seems very logical how it occurs in different industries. Um, with all of what you just said there, do you see like any opportunities for like disruption or innovation? I guess you'd probably say like drilling for more oil is probably a good idea right now. Nuclear is a good idea. Can you expand on those or do you have any other ideas that could potentially lead to disrupt disruption or innovation? I think like on the nuclear side, probably modular reactors is a popular theme. I'm not an expert on it, but I've seen some promising uh, stuff there. I think there's some projects that could be kicking off later this decade that if they work, uh, could be a real game changer uh, for nuclear energy. I think with oil and gas, it's not something that needs to be super fancy. I think it's just really an investment in infrastructure. I think that if we really wanted to disrupt the global order from a geopolitical and from a really trying to combat inflation, you know, we could invest, uh, you know, the same amount of money that we put into this Inflation Reduction Act that went into all the green stuff, which I think is primarily benefiting China. And again, that's another topic we could go into. But if we would have said, said, hey, let's invest domestically and build new refineries and build new pipelines for natural gas to to get more takeaway coming out of the Northeast where we have just an ocean of gas in the Marcellus and Utica shales. If we looked at ways to streamline the process for you know, permitting on government, you know, federal lands. And I know they say, oh, they've got all these permits they're sitting on. There's a lot of nuance there. It is very difficult to develop federal lands. There's some guys that are pretty gotten pretty good at it, but there's things we could do there to make that even easier for folks. And really just the infrastructure. I mean, we haven't built a new refinery in the U.S. since the 70s. It's effectively illegal uh, to build them here now, uh, given the permitting and the regulations. Uh, The other thing is mining. Like, I think that the U.S. has a huge abundance of resources that could be mined and if, you know, there is a serious push towards this uh, wanting to have lower carbon energy sources, and if, you know, solar and wind aren't going away, which I don't think that they are, even though I think that they are inefficient, uh, we could do a lot more here domestically uh, to unlock the resources that we have uh, for that. We've got uranium deposits here that we could that we could mine for. And so really, I don't think it has to be something that's this wholesale sweeping change. I think it's just, you know, building more infrastructure, getting the permitting process to be able to extract these minerals. Um, streamlining things from a regulatory standpoint. I really think that we could, I mean, we're the leader in energy in the world. And I think that we can continue to be that and even have more dominance if we could get some of these things done. So one of the bright spots has been LNG, which is liquefied natural gas and the, the ability to export that. We have done a great job uh, getting those, excuse me, facilities online and streamlining them. And they, the permitting process is still decently long and there's still a lot of hurdles, but We've done a lot better job than, for example, countries like Canada, who has a ton of natural gas, has not been able to get these things online. So we are now interconnecting our natural gas markets with the world. And we saw last winter uh, how much that helped Europe with the when the Russian invasion of Ukraine was happening and all the sanctions. And we were able to get them, you know, prices spiked. And in a pretty quick time period, we were able to get them a lot of LNG to import into Europe to then lower prices back down to a reasonable level. So I think just more, you know, more infrastructure like that. And we can really control our destiny and be quite disruptive and help keep prices low, which quite frankly, energy is the base input of everything. And that's going to ripple through to inflation. And that's been a lot of the recent uh, CPI prints where we've gone higher again. It's a lot of the core inflation stuff. And so if we can keep that cheap and keep that uh, under control, it's going to help a lot. And uh, it's going to do just as much or more than like raising interest rates in terms of fighting inflation, or at least that's my view. I think cheap energy is the key, but uh, infrastructure is at the front of it because we have the resource, <clears throat> but you got to get it to market. You got to refine it. You got to process it. You got to get it to people's homes and businesses. 
And if we can do that more efficiently, I think it could really um, set us up for a brighter future. I definitely agree. Being able to produce cheap, abundant energy specifically in the U.S. would be a great goal for the entire country. Um, you mentioned how some of the renewable transition has been benefiting China. Can you kind of expand on on that idea? Well, we don't make a lot of this stuff, uh, like solar panels and even the raw materials for wind turbines here. A lot of it's made in China. China is by far the number one manufacturer of uh, the cells for solar panels. And a lot of times they'll try to play this shell game where, you know, they make the raw materials and they ship them to some other uh, Asian country and then they assemble them there. But don't kid yourself, it's all China. And so you look at the subsidies for the batteries and the solar panels and all these initiatives that have gone into this uh, green energy push. And we're effectively shipping not billions, but hundreds of billions of dollars to companies in China that only they can manufacture these things. And so we know China, we saw it during COVID, what happens when they turn off supply for critical things that we need, like medicine or masks or whatever it was that, you know, we were freaking out when COVID happened, China shut down and it's like, hey, we can't get the stuff that we need. Why are we now pushing to have all of our energy resources need to come from China? Because that's basically today, that's what it is. And you know, we could argue, well, why don't we just make it here? Well, if we made it here, it'd be even more expensive because they've got basically slave labor, very cheap labor over there. They don't adhere to the same, you know, people want to say, oh, it's just capitalism. They're cheaper. It's not really. It's the government uh, manipulating markets to make things cheaper, dumping products on us. And that's capitalism in a sense, but it's capitalism that's manipulated by, uh, by government and by the money printer. And so I think that, uh, a lot of these policies and you can look at them across the board is like a direct benefit of China. And that's what's so frustrating, not to get too political, but looking at the current administration and, you know, that side of the aisle, you know, everything seems to be wanting to hurt, uh, us companies in terms of energy and want to benefit, you know, foreign companies, whether it's China with the green transition or whether it's like, you know, trying to do a deal with Iran to produce, you know, because they know that they can produce more oil or trying to do a deal with Venezuela or these other countries that are clearly not our friend. They don't have the same, you know, human rights that we have here. They don't have the same. It's not domestic. It's not benefiting, creating jobs here. And yet they would rather go pander to those uh, countries and companies that, that work in those spaces because those are the primary special interests that fund a lot of these politicians, right? So it's like, hey, look, we want more oil, but I can't advocate for American oil because that's like the people that vote for me, they have a vested interest in the green side. So I have to like go to these other countries and try to get them to produce it, go to Saudi Arabia and beg for more. And it's like, we have it here. And so it's just, it's uh, a lot of these policies, again, I think quoting like a Doomberg, he was like, if our enemies had to design a policy to weaken the US, it would be the green movement. Like if they, if they could draw it up on a whiteboard, this would be what they would do. And so it's, um, you know, look, it's a noble goal to want to save the planet and to want to be good stewards of the environment. I don't think anybody wants an unhabitable planet, but it's the realistic, you know, goals to getting there. And for example, natural gas has displaced a lot of coal. That's done more to reduce emissions by 2x than what renewables has done over the last 10 years. Yeah, you don't hear people in the green movement really talking about it. If anything, they want to get rid of natural gas. And so it's just there's a lot of things that are being done that you don't have to be like a climate denier or like anti-green to be like, hey, these aren't the best decisions. Even if you, you know, believe everything out of the IPCC reports, I can still show you a better way to get there that is from a domestic standpoint that provides more security. Uh, for our country, it provides more jobs, and we can still meet these goals. Yeah. On, on that note of renewables and kind of like electrifying so many different things like cars and, and everything like that, 
when it comes to like the grids itself, like I know we have ERCOT, which is based out of Texas. And then we have like more of the national grid. Do you have like a preference on like which model you prefer? Like if we do continue to electrify things or say nuclear gets a lot bigger and we do electrify a lot of different things, do you have a model of grid which you prefer? Can maybe you explain the difference between like ERCOT and like the national grid? I'm not an expert on the grid stuff. I think a great book is uh, Meredith Agwin's, uh, what is it? Something, the grid, shorting the grid. That's a good one that you guys can read. And and it's one that gets into a lot of the details, but Basically, I'll just I'll put it this way: the more regulation and the more government involvement in these things, it, it's not making it cheaper. It's not making it more efficient, right? It's we need investment, we need free markets, and we need the free markets to be able to drive innovation. And when we have you know markets that are captured, they have this regulatory capture, it, it makes increasing inefficiencies. And so, really, when I talked about the way to be disruptive in energy, I threw out refineries and pipelines. The same goes for the grid. We need more transmission lines. Uh, we need more interconnectivity. We need more ability for the free markets to work. And I think that we can, you know, transition more to being electric. But right now, the grid's not capable of handling every car being an electric vehicle. It's not capable of handling all power being solar and wind. It's just not set up for it. And so you need a ton of investment. And when you try to do a lot of investment in these government-controlled entities or regulated entities, there's, again, it gets back to a lot of misallocation of capital. And so the more that we can create free markets there, I think that uh, that you can spur actual investment that's going to help. But there's a ton of infrastructure that needs to get built if we want to transition to everything being electric. Most people kind of recognize that our quality of life today is due to our ability, like we talked about, to, like, to produce and harness abundant amount of energy. Are we on other than like small nuclear reactors or is that really it? Or maybe there's something in oil and gas are we on the cusp of any transformational energy breakthroughs? It's hard to say. I mean, there's a lot of hype out there. I tend to think that most of it isn't real. I mean, the reality is energy density is kind of king. And when you look at uranium and what we can do on the nuclear side, it, we we had that invented a long time ago, and we haven't really been maximizing the potential there. I think we could do more. I think for oil and gas, there's still a ton of it that can be explored and you know extracted out of the ground, and we can get more efficient with that. I think that a lot of the gains in the future are going to be more efficiency gains. It's like, hey, instead of going EV, why don't we look at going hybrid? And you can get cars and trucks and SUVs up to like 40, 50 miles a gallon. That's a lot more achievable and easier to do than going full electric. Full electric is this kind of sweeping change. And so if we can focus in on efficiencies, I think that that's going to get us a long way towards where we want to go. And But we also have to focus again on investing and investing in the right places. And I think that infrastructure, again, is top of mind for that. I don't know that like things like nuclear fusion or, you know, some of these more bizarre like giant solar panels on the ocean or in the sky or whatever, these crazy hydrogen, you know, I mean, there's just, you know, battery powered stuff. I mean, it's those all have niche applications, but the reality is we just need more energy. And the more that we can get and the more efficient we can be getting it out, extracting it and harnessing it, uh, the better off things are going to go. And right now there's just a ton of inefficiencies, again, driven mainly by regulatory and uh, politics. Yeah. And here's another interesting question that you may not have an answer to, but curious to hear your thoughts. Have there ever been like any civilizations or, you know, cultures or societies in the past that have thrived but couldn't produce much energy like relative to their you know enemies or their peers around them or like do those civilizations just 
end up getting conquered because they can't like produce and harness energy effectively. Well, you know, energy and civilization are very closely linked. And if you look at the ability to harness energy, whether that's something, you know, back in the day as basic as like being able to use um, iron and steel and bronze, right, to make weapons and how efficient they can do that, whether it be through a water mill or some kind of way to, to make these furnaces that can make better weapon technology. That was a huge deal back in the day uh, to, you know, how good of weapons you had. Then you looked at like explosives and you looked at uh, building, you know, guns and bombs and all these things. And if you look at World War II, World War One, controlling the energy sources were very critical in who was going to win those. And then the other thing to look at is the ladder of energy. And it's like societies and civilizations are always going uh, more dense on energy density, right? It's like the, you know, the further you go and you get more energy dense, you get more efficiencies. Right now we're going backwards. We're getting less energy dense. We're looking at going to wind and solar, which there's a difference between abundance and energy density. And yes, like, you know, Elon Musk can tweet that, hey, all we need is solar panels the size of whatever the state of Texas or something. He had some tweet. If we had that many solar panels, it could like power the world. And it's like, not really, um, because you'd have to get that energy all around the world. Like, look, if we had, you know, one thing that I didn't mention earlier around technology that be, could be a game changer, if you did have this, uh, what was that thing, that the levitating thing that they just talked about, the uh, zero resistance? Yeah. What was it called? The uh, semiconductor. It was like two letters and then like- Yeah, the, the LK40, whatever, like the new yeah. semiconductor. Yeah, like if you could have these new semiconductors that worked at room temperature and you could transport energy without any losses all around the globe, then sure, you could put energy, you know, uh, low energy density, like solar panels and wind farms in certain places and then just export it around the world because you wouldn't have all the loss from the transmission side. But today that's not real. So if we could come up with a room temperature semiconductor, then yeah, that could be a big game changer there. But it's just uh, one of those things where civilization, typically we gravitate towards more energy density. And that's what you can directly tie that to things. Like if you look at the use of hydrocarbons um, and you look at population of the world, it just goes straight up. It's like use of hydrocarbons and then the number of people on the planet just goes up, you know, parabolic. And it's because the more energy that we have access to, the more dense that energy is, uh, the more the planet prospers. And so trying to go backwards and say we're going to go to less energy-dense sources has not been something historically that humanity has been able to do that's resulted in prosperity. Typically, whenever you're going to a less energy-dense uh, source of energy, it's, it's doing the opposite. Society is kind of crumbling in those areas, right? So again, it's I'm not saying we can't make innovations and do new things but right now history would suggest that you got to be getting denser and the most dense is uh, clearly nuclear with uranium but then you've got like oil and gas which are pretty dang good i mean they're basically a, a battery right like it's a battery that you can carry around all that energy stored in like a liquid or a gaseous state and that's incredibly powerful yeah it definitely seems like obviously more dense energies are best and to me you could like even draw a parallel with civilizations using more dense energy to civilizations using better money right like if your civilization is using shells or glass beads or salt and then another civilization is using gold then they might be able to conquer you and and or extract wealth from you by like saying oh these guys are using shells like let's just get a bunch of shells and and buy all their you know assets that they have um so i don't know if you have any thoughts on that well, gold is basically like an energy-backed currency in a lot of ways because it takes a ton of energy to, to extract it out of the ground. It's hard to get. It's scarce. It's, got, it's less scarce than Bitcoin, obviously, but there's a lot of parallels there between it takes energy to create 
gold. You have to take human work. It takes real proof of work. You got to find it, explore for it, explore it, get it out of the ground. And it takes actual physical work and energy to, to create that monetary value. The same with Bitcoin. You've got to expend energy. You've got to uh, run ASICs. You've got to uphold the network. And then you've got an even more finite supply of it. And so, yeah, I would think that even with the Bitcoin network, you know, guys that are going to be uh, profitable miners in the future are going to have to have access to the cheapest in the most abundant form of energy. It could be waste energy over time. It could, but if it's not waste energy, which would be the cheapest, then it would need to be extremely energy dense and very, very affordable and reliable. And so again, I think that those energy sources are probably the higher dense ones, higher ones with higher density. But yeah, definitely some parallels there between money and energy and um, how they tie together. Yeah, and, and you started to mention Bitcoin mining related to energy as well. Um, and I know, like you mentioned earlier, you do have an off-site or off-grid uh, Bitcoin mining. And you've, I know you've talked about a lot about Bitcoin mining in the past and energy. What role in, in your mind, especially since you've been in the industry, I guess, you know, for two years at this point, or at least Bitcoin mining, or you started to dip your toe in, what, what role is Bitcoin mining starting to play in the energy in the in the energy world i think the easiest role for it to play is to go after wasted and stranded energy and it doesn't have to be energy that is um has zero value it just needs to be energy that's otherwise you know not utilized in a way that could create that bitcoin mining could create more value for and i think that if you look at things like on the grid there's a ton of wasted energy and it makes a lot of sense to have bitcoin mines in places where that energy would otherwise not be utilized uh, to have that steady supply of baseload demand. I think in the oil and gas industry, it's a lot of like, there's a lot of flared natural gas and just energy that's wasted. There's a lot of heat that's wasted as well um, in a lot of these processes and manufacturing and things like that. And so, and then in the renewable space, you've got times when the wind is blowing and nobody's using it, right? Or the sun is shining and not enough people are using it. And so areas where it can slot in and become uh, the buyer of last resort and the buyer of first resort, I think, are the the natural, logical places uh, to mine. I think the problem over the last couple of years is a lot of people have uh, put Bitcoin mines in places just because they could, not because they should, and that's maybe not the most efficient use for energy in that specific instance. And I think over time that'll play out, and those guys will be the less effective miners and the guys that can have access to the cheap energy, and they can also have access to multiple revenue streams. I mean, that's huge, right? It's like if you've got wasted flared gas, but you can also sell oil. Well, the oil is the primary driver of the economics. The The gas is just a byproduct. So if you can mine Bitcoin for that, that's great. That's just a little bit of extra incremental economics on top. And, you know, if Bitcoin price does well, if you hold that as a treasury asset, that could be a nice boost for your company. But if like your sole thing is just, you know, mining Bitcoin, you don't have that other uh, revenue stream to offset it. You have a higher marginal cost to produce because you don't have another revenue source. Or for example, on the Texas grid, these guys that are doing demand response, that's another revenue source. It's a way for them to generate revenue outside of just Bitcoin mining. And so I think that it's not just cheap energy, it's what other revenue sources do you have within that mining operation? And how can that subsidize these times when the mining is going up and down because of the price or the hash rate, et cetera. So I think over time, it should gravitate towards the most efficient places to put it. And that should be those areas that I mentioned, waste energy and other areas where you kind of have it as an ancillary thing that supports, you know, the broader business. Yeah. Has there been any progress on how energy executives, maybe at larger companies that you know of, like how they view Bitcoin mining? Are they 
Yeah. Are they still like, you know, what is this Bitcoin thing, this new digital gold, or like has the market been so bad that like they're not even thinking about this right now? But do you know how other <laughs> energy companies or big energy executives think about Bitcoin mining? I think it's been, it was a really interesting curiosity there when the price was pumping and when you looked at it on a converted, you know, energy equivalent basis, right? So if you said, hey, like, per kilowatt hour, I can get this, or per MCF if it's gas, or whatever you know unit you want to measure. And when you saw those eye-popping valuations for what you could convert energy into Bitcoin for, and it was this huge spread, this huge arbitrage, I think that was getting a lot of people's attention. I think also during that time, we're talking like 2000, 2020 and 2021, traditional energy prices had crashed. And so you've got this higher value use case for energy. And I think that that was something. And then you've got this ability to put it anywhere in the world. You can place it out in the field. You can put it at a refinery or a plant. You can put it next to a behind the grid or behind the meter, like a solar installation, things like that. And that was getting a lot of people's attention. I think as prices came up, you know, with oil at $90 or $100 a barrel, uh, these energy executives are very focused on extracting oil because that's going to drive the primary economics for their stock price and shareholders and, you know, and for the company. So, I think people have, it's definitely died off, and but there's still folks out there that see that it's a viable technology, and that's kind of how we view it. It's like, maybe this is not going to be the thing that our business does primarily uh, as the main income driver, but like it's a tool set that we have. We've learned how to create power. We've learned how to mine Bitcoin, and we've learned how to utilize this tech, and uh, and so I think that energy executives are kind of like, their interest went really high. It's probably similar to like the cycles with you know Bitcoin price, right? It's like, interest Google trends or whatever, everybody's like Googling Bitcoin price when the price is 60,000. And then when it goes to 20,000, it, it drops off. So I think it will always be there. And I think it will, uh, it will probably get more popular if the price of Bitcoin pumps and the hash price specifically goes up, that it's going to get more people's attention. But right now, I think traditional energy guys are focused on their core business. And so it's just going to take time. And I think that We'll see. I know there's other applications like uh, all the AI stuff going on with needing these server farms there as well. And so just this whole idea of generating cheap power and using waste energy to, you know, to power computers, whether it be for the Bitcoin network or for other technologies, I think is is here to stay. And there are some folks that are certainly getting very smart on how to best utilize that tech. But it's just always got to compete, right, with uh, the other uses of their capital and the other uses of their time. And right now, given the economics of it, compared to traditional energy exploration and production, I think it's less high up on the priorities, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can definitely see how interest has been certainly waning from the energy sector, at least for now. I'm sure, like like you said, like if there's another major bull market, which I certainly expect at some point, it's probably all going to come back and be even crazier than it was before. Um, I'm curious, how are... If you, if you can talk about this, how is Ancova with your off-grid site, how are you guys thinking about Bitcoin mining right now? Are you are you taking that super conservative approach like, hey, you know, the halving's coming up. This is, a, like you talked about, this is a side part of our business. It's not our main business. You know, we're not going to be investing in Bitcoin mining or like you, you know, expanding right now or thinking about expanding. How do you, how do you, how do you think about it? I would love to expand. I think the biggest issue that we have right now is just scale. Like we've got to, you know, decent little size mine. I mean, it was big for us. Like we didn't get outside investors, so we put money into it. But the reality is, is that the more scale you can get, uh, the better the economics are from a lot of perspectives, especially if you're doing off grid mining. Because if like a generator goes down and you got to send a technician out there to fix it, if you've got a larger mine with a lot more Bitcoin coming in every month, 
then that supports those operation costs better than if you have a small mine and it's like, ah, uh, we got to send another guy out there that's going to eat into this percentage of our profit, whatever. So we're definitely interested in scaling it. I think the challenge right now is the halving coming up and ASIC prices have gotten cheaper. There's certainly been a case for us to go and replace units that are that are broke down or have issues. You can go in and replace them, get a really cheap replacement unit uh, right now. But to go out and to launch a new mine, I have buddies that are doing it right now. I talk to folks all the time that are still getting really aggressive and putting new mines in. And every time I start to get really bullish about wanting to go do another deployment in the mining space, someone will like text me like, you know, a new like uh, giant facility that's coming online. They're like, oh, look at all this mine, you know, all this hash that's going to come online. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this guy's about to commission this giant facility. And it's like the halving's coming up. And then I start to get like bearish on hash price. So I would be... I think the best way to look at mining is if you can have a reasonable payout within a year of when you deploy, I think it can make sense. If your time horizon, given the cost of your energy and you're looking at it, and it's going to be 18 months or 24 months. That's a lot of uncertainty. A lot of stuff can happen then. Even in a year, the price can move a lot, but it's just tough to deploy right now. My personal view is it's tough to deploy right now going into the halving. I think that if we go into the halving, and prices don't pump for some period of time, I think ASICs are going to get extremely cheap. I think they're going to look, they could be even, like the ones now could look expensive. We'll see. I could be wrong, but it's, uh, there's a lot of bulls out there and guys that are still deploying that are saying, like, you have a little faith, right? Like, you need to go and do it. But it, it reminds me a lot of the oil and gas industry again. It is being in a place from a balance sheet perspective and a capitalization perspective and also you know, being able to act and being having the experience to move whenever the market dictates it. The guys that make a lot of money in oil and gas, and I think also in Bitcoin mining, are the guys that can come in when the market's at the very bottom or when they perceive it to be at the very bottom. They can deploy capital. They can scoop up assets. They can get, you know, operations going and make the make it work at those prices. And then when price goes up, they reap the benefit of that and, and they make it look easy. And so timing is the key. And it's really hard because a lot of that's luck because no one can predict the future. But I do think that with Bitcoin, at least, you know, the halving is coming. So on the production side, you know, I'm going to lose half my production uh, here sometime at the beginning of, you know, middle, beginning of next year. So it's a tough time to want to go out and underwrite a big project. I think that guys can still justify it, but there's a lot of bullish folks that think price is just going to automatically pump after the halving. And they may be right, but it, you know, it kind of needs to double and stay there at a minimum just to stay where we're at. Right. And that's if hash rate stays flat. And I don't think hash rate's staying flat. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on it because uh, yeah. I worked for a miner. But what do you think about the current environment? It is crazy. I mean, one thing that surprised me, I guess, for most of this year is the relentless upward trend of hash rate. It's like, I remember in 2022, people were like asking, like, why is hash rate still going up despite Bitcoin, you know, just going off right. a cliff? I was like, oh, well, it's like the lag, like you talked about, like people invested back in 2021 and now this hash rate is getting deployed. I think, I guess that continued to some extent in 2023, but it's like right. still in 2023, people are still deploying capital and, and buying more hash rate. I guess some of these large public miners are like, we got to continue to grow. So like part of the fiat system, I feel like is continuing to grow at all costs. And like, sometimes that may not be the best most rational decision if you want to survive in the long term because like the having will probably come and like you said if the price isn't much higher from where it is today there's going to be a good wipeout i'd say of a good number of players so you know it'll be interesting to see what happens i guess what do you think about hash rate continuing to go up like i think i saw 
recently have surpassed like 400 exahash, which I didn't really expect, but some people did. Um, what do you think about that? I don't. I think it's. I don't think it's rational. Uh, I think that the network, and again, I might get beat up for this. I think the network's probably too secure right now. Which some people may argue you can never be too secure, but there's like a there's a rationalization for how secure it needs to be, um, given the uh, the amount of hash rate that gets deployed. And I think that it it goes back to like what I was saying with oil and gas. It's like guys were drilling for the sake of drilling, and they destroyed a lot of capital, and they you know, put a bunch of dollars into the ground that didn't probably make sense to do it because they had a service debt, they had to grow, they had shareholders, they had all these things. With Bitcoin mining, could there be rationalization to to go and to keep deploying in big ways right now? Sure. I mean, everybody's economics are different. Like there's some people right now that they may have a alternative revenue sources that are coming in. And for them, it's like, hey, this is just, I can make the investment now. It's cheap. And I know that my business is going to withstand it because we've got these other ways to bring income in and we're going to be set up and we're going to deploy now and we're going to deploy through the halving. And then when things pump, we're going to be well positioned because of that. Do I think that those people are out there? Yeah, I'm sure they are. I, I mean, I know there's plenty of people out there with access to really cheap energy that can make it work at even like a ridiculously low hash price. I also think there's a lot of people out there that have raised capital and taken out debt or gone public and they have a mandate to grow and they don't really have a choice. Like, I mean, they do have a choice is to not do what they said they were going to do to their investors and their stakeholders and et cetera. Um, but that wouldn't look good and they would be out of a job maybe. And so similar to oil and gas, there's a lot of guys like, Hey, you probably shouldn't drill that like giant natural gas. Well, whenever natural gas prices are at a buck 50 and after all the fees and everything you pay, you're netting back 20 cents, which you can't make any of these economics work at that. And they still just go do it anyways. Right. Um, so I don't know, man. I, I, I tend to think that after the having, there's going to be a lot of ha zombie hash rate. I don't know. That, that's the that's the vibe I'm getting. But I, I, it's just there's been so much growth. Again, like I'm sure there's guys that could take the other side of this argument and give me a bunch of reasons why I'm wrong. But that's where I tend to think it's going, at least in the next 12 to 24 months. Yeah. I, I mean, I do know that someone like Adam Bact, he's projected like 100K before the halving, which if that's the case, then most miners are going to be crushing it probably. But yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree. I think if price doesn't rip higher, it's probably going to create a massive opportunity to get into mining after the halving, you know, three, four months after the halving. And then if price actually does go on a parabolic bull run like it has in the past, then it's those people that, you know, can somehow snipe the bottom are going to absolutely crush it in the mining industry but you know if price just starts running away like it has been you know over the last couple of weeks maybe it will continue to continue doing this and hit 100k before the halving and adam back will be right and you know if you wanted to get into mining you should have bought asics recently <laughs> i mean there's like the middle case too right which is like it doesn't rip to 100 but it goes to 55 or whatever or 60 and we set like a new range bound price which is, you know, within where it's been in the past and guys like limp along, you know, and make it work. Um, that could also happen. But, and then I think like over time, knowing the fundamentals of Bitcoin and the asset itself and what's happening with the new institutional adoption, you know, ZTFs, all this stuff, I don't know how much uh, to put on that, how much weight to put on that, whether it's real and what it's going to do to price. But I think that over time, the logical conclusion is that Bitcoin will go up in price. Doesn't mean it always will. I think over a long enough time horizon, it probably will. And so it's just going to be like, does that time horizon sync up with these guys' needs for capital and how long they can survive, right? And so there is a middle ground where it goes to like 48 or 50 something, 
and there's the having and it's like well we're not like killing it but we're not dead yet and we just kind of keep going and then maybe it jumps to 60 or 70 and then they can kind of keep breathing so um or like you know adam said it could go to 100 and these guys are doing really well um we'll see but yeah i think at some point like bitcoin is going to go back up to a higher price it's going to set a new all-time high like it's just going to happen i don't know when i think it's yeah inevitable i agree it's just a just a matter of time could be fast could be slow who knows um Outside of Bitcoin and energy, what excites you the most? Are you reading anything interesting? Are you listening to any podcasts that are interesting? Yeah, I try to read and listen to stuff a lot. I'm a big history guy. I like, uh, I know that that's not super interesting to a lot of people. I, that's like how you know you're old is uh, you like to read history stuff. So I read a lot of history stuff. I'm following a lot of the geopolitical conflicts around the world. I mean, that's a more of a morbid curiosity, but everything that's going on and and now in the middle east and then also in in europe and then like what china is going to do in the next couple of years that's all pretty fascinating from a business standpoint uh really still focusing on tech thinking about our tech platform that we're working on what are the applications that we can use the products that we're building to do i've read a lot of like uh software development kind of books like that people have written i've never done like tech stuff in the past and so i'm trying to figure out that industry a little better and so a lot of the like reading from a business standpoint has been more around software and how to grow those types of businesses and like the different things to think about. So that's typically what's on my radar from like a, a reading perspective. And, you know, and I listen to podcasts, I, I get on people's podcasts. I uh, love to come on and do them still have the podcast I'm doing. I've slowed way down. It's been hard lately. I've been doing about two or three a month now. And when I was doing like two a week there for a while. And so I'd like to do more media stuff. I just need to I need to be less busy, honestly, and find some more time to carve out for it. I think that the media side for me is something that I love having it in my back pocket. And I always want to like have that platform, but I like, you know, will I always be tweeting like 10 times a day, like recently, like I haven't been, I don't know. I've just been busy, but like, doesn't mean I can't always turn that back on. So uh, I've been very happy with the getting out there in the media space. I love doing that stuff. It's, it's definitely a hobby and a passion, but been trying to rationalize it in my time allocation here lately just because uh, i got a lot going on yeah i definitely from me following your twitter and your podcast i know you definitely have a lot going on i've i've seen you talk about tech real estate energy those three different sectors like of those three sectors do you have a you know one that excites you the most over the next five years i think like the technology side is probably the most growth and upside in a lot of ways i think that if you can get really good the marginal cost to produce the next unit it can be really low and we're still trying to get there with what we do. There's still probably too much stuff that's manual. So we're trying to streamline and automate processes and build, you know, build stuff that helps it get easier and easier. I think on the real estate side, I love real estate. It's like, there's a scarcity aspect of land and owning land and like creating an experience is fun. You know, right now the 10 year yield, I think crossed uh 5% earlier today. I think it bounced back down below. So like Real estate will be challenged from a macro standpoint with rates this high. It's not going away either. Um, you know, it's one of those deals where, yeah, like a lot of things, Bitcoin mining or energy or whatever, you can, if you have a long-term view on real estate, I think it's a really cool place to play. If you want to talk about uh, the man and how things are set up, like taxes are very advantaged. So there's a lot of like wealth in that sector. And so the systems in place today uh, by the powers that be, make it very advantaged from a from a tax standpoint, from an investment standpoint. So it's interesting to me. But like, yeah, I think just lately I've tried to pare it back a little bit. It's like I would love to do more Bitcoin mining. It's just like there's only so many hours in the day, 
in the last like year has been a lot of rationalization of time usage. It's like, I would love to do two podcasts a week. I'd love to like go open another Bitcoin mine. I'd love to do these things, but it's like, where can I focus my time and effort to create the highest value of marginal output for the time that I'm putting in? And, you know, the last year or so, it's been primarily in our energy business on the tech side. And then also in the real estate stuff has been where I'm getting the most ROI for my time. Doesn't mean that's always going to be that way. And I think, like I mentioned about having the Twitter and having social media, like having those skill sets, having that in your back pocket under, you know, being more well, more well-rounded and always learning, I think helps set you up for when the tides do turn, when, you know, Bitcoin mining becomes way more profitable again, or when real estate pumps again, because rates go down or whatever it may be, you know, learning and building in the bear markets, that's cliche, but I think that it's, it's true. And so continuing to rationalize and focus where I'm spending time and making sure that I'm getting the highest ROI today, but still, you know, learning and continuing to grow personally from a development standpoint is really what I've been trying to do and high, kind of high grade everything. Yeah, I love it. Max, really enjoyed this conversation. Where can the audience go learn more about you and, and what you're building? Yeah, just follow me on Twitter. It's Max underscore Gagliardi. Yeah, I got a YouTube that's the same uh, name. The podcast is called Always Be Building. It's pretty broad. We talk about a lot of energy stuff, a lot of entrepreneurship, and uh, as well as the markets. I try to try to cycle through guests having like a, you know, someone on who's like an energy guy or a macro guy or entrepreneur that started a business. So if you're interested in business or the markets, I think it's a, I've got some really cool guests on there. You can check that out. It's on all the podcast apps. And uh, yeah, but like, you know, Twitter and LinkedIn, stuff like that. Good place to find me. Cool. Yeah, Max, thanks so much for coming on. This is this is awesome. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. <laughs>